right, good morning, everybody. Really glad to see you today. I hope you have your Bible with you and that you'll turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. That's where we're at now, 2 Peter chapter 3. Last week, we moved into a new section of 2 Peter, which brought with it a change of tone. Still motivated by pastor love, pastoral love, Peter switches from the harshness of warning to the tenderness of encouragement and reminder. You might remember that he called his audience beloved. And that's a good reminder to them, and it's a good reminder to us that we are loved. We are loved first by God in Christ. It's incredible to think that the holy God loves us sinful creatures in such a way that he would sacrifice his own son in our place that we might be reconciled to him. That's outrageous. And as I said last week, that is outrageously good. And also, we are loved by spiritual leaders in the church. Secondly, it's a reminder that we are loved by spiritual leaders in the church as Peter loved his audience and wanted to see them finish the race. So we love you and want to see you finish the race. Sometimes that love, that pastoral love comes out in harsh warnings and sometimes it comes out in gentle reminders. You are loved. Remember that. Remember that today. In his love, Peter wanted to remind his audience of the basic truths of the gospel. Truths that are found in the Bible, right? Truths that are found in the Bible, spoken through the prophets, spoken through the apostles, the words of Jesus himself, since he is the originator of it all. Brothers and sisters, we must remember the basics and keep turning back to the Bible. We're never going to grow out of the Bible. We're never going to move on to something better than the Bible, something different than the Bible. We just keep turning back to the book. Every step away from the book is a step away from the Lord, Every step of the way from, away from the book is a step down the broad road that leads to destruction. So I encouraged you last week, stay on the old road. Stay on the old road. The narrow road is an ancient road. And if you stay on that road, you will find your way home. Well, this week, Peter's going to give us some of the reasons why we need to remember the basics. Some of the reasons why we need to keep our noses in the book. I've been super impressed over the last several months as we've been studying First and Second Peter, how timely God's word has been for us. The Lord has been so faithful, so faithful to give us what we need when we need it. He hasn't always given us what's easy to hear. He hasn't always given us what we want to hear, but he has always given us what we need to hear. And we need to hear this today. We need to hear this word today because there are mockers. There are mockers out there. Some of you are getting scoffed at every day. Every day at work and at school, you're getting dismissed and belittled scoffed and mocked. There are those out there who deny the coming of Christ. They deny the judgment that he will bring with him when he comes. And they do this because it allows them to indulge in the flesh. And they try to lure us to walk the broad road with them. So brothers and sisters, today we need to remember that he is coming back. Jesus is coming back. He is. And when he does, he will repay every man according to his deeds. Judging his enemies and vindicating his people. Remember that. Remember that. Hold on to that. And walk in faithful obedience every step of the way. Well, we're going to read today from 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4, even though we're only going to look closely at verses 3 and 4. I want you to see how this, this argument is developing. And it's going to keep developing all throughout chapter 3. We, we are like really fine-tooth comb right here in chapter 3. Uh, fine-tooth comb in the smaller parts of a much bigger argument. And so we're going to be building each week as we go. So let's read verses 1 through 4, zooming in closely on verses 3 and 4. This is God's word. It says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you. 
in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Let's pray together. Oh Lord Jesus, we beg you to come quickly. Because we know that when you come, everything will be set right. You will set everything right. Those who have opposed you, those who have rejected you in unbelief will be judged for their sin. And we who trust in you, whom you have redeemed and made new, whom you have preserved in faith, will be vindicated, rewarded, and glorified with you as a gift of your grace. Oh, Lord Jesus, we long for that. And until that day, until that day comes, we ask you to keep us faithful, keep us humble as we walk with you, not just as individuals, but as a church, as we walk with you, keep us faithful and humble and keep us useful as we seek to tell our neighbors and the nations about your death, burial, and resurrection and the good news, the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in you alone, Lord Jesus. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. All right, so I told you, fine-tooth comb today, um, really always, but especially today, fine-tooth comb. We're going to look at every little phrase here. There's so much for us to learn today. Look at the beginning of verse 3. Pastor Peter says, know this first of all. By using this phrase, Peter is alerting his audience to the importance of the matter. This first of all phrase is not to indicate the timing or the chronology of something. Rather, it's to indicate its level of importance. It is not first in the order of things, in other words, but as Paul said, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15 a second ago, it is of first importance. It is a matter of first importance. So if you're reading the NIV or CSB translation, when it says above all, Above all, know this, that's a really good capturing of the essence of what Peter is saying there. In saying this, he's also alerting us that what he's about to say is the very thing, the very thing spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior, spoken by your apostles, like we saw last week. In, in other words, when we look at the book, when we look at the Bible, this is one of the important things that we will see. One of the important things from the book is what Peter wants his audience especially to remember, that scoffers will come and Jesus is coming back. What Pastor Peter is saying doesn't come out of thin air this week. It comes from the prophets. It comes from the apostles. It comes from the Lord Jesus himself. Know this, of all the things in the Bible, Pastor Peter is saying to his audience, this is of first importance. I want you to pay attention to this. Next phrase, he says that in the last days, know this first of all, that in the last days. We could probably spend our entire time together today talking about this phrase, the last days. But we've already spent a significant amount of time talking about and thinking about the last days as we studied all the way through the book of Revelation a while back. And even in our most recent study of 1 Peter, we've been talking about the last days quite a bit. Let me remind you that Peter, like all the New Testament authors, understands that the last days began after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus when he ascended back to heaven, right? That's the beginning of the last days. And so friends, we are in the last days and we have been in the last days for 2000 years. The Lord Jesus has gone up 
and the next thing on the eschatological calendar is he comes back. Right? That's what, that's, that's what we're waiting for. So between his going up and his coming back, we've got the last days. We have been living in the last days. Now, are there very last days of those last days? Sure. Sure, there are very last days of those last days. But let's not think today that what Peter is talking about when he talks about scoffing, when he talks about the false teachers, when he talks about apostasy, when he talks about all manner of debauchery, don't think that that is reserved for someday in the future. Friends, that's now. We are living in that now. He is not just preparing his audience and us for something that is to come. Rather, he is equipping his audience and us for what we are currently experiencing because we are living in the last days. What's interesting to me is that it seems like Peter knew that from the very first day of the last days. In fact, if you'll look at Acts chapter 2 with me, what I really want you to see in Acts chapter 2 is in verse 17, but I want you to get uh, more, I wasn't really sure where to start reading, so I just started at the beginning. I want you to get the whole context here. This is the day of Pentecost. This is the birth of the church, right? This is the outpouring of the Spirit and Peter preaching. This is the beginning of the last days right here. Look at it. Uh, Verse 1 says, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them as tongues of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together, and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Let me pause there and say, that's a jab. That, that's it. Are, are not all these speaking Galileans? Um, one, one commentator one time said Galilean hillbillies. How is it, verse 8, that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and all the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking. Mark that down. That's a jab. Others were mocking, saying, they're full of sweet wine. They're drunk, in other words. But Peter, Pastor Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. Verse 17. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Do you catch what's going on here in this text? Do you see how Peter understands himself to be living in the last days, even on the first day of those last days at Pentecost? Do you see Two prominent features of the last days as Peter describes them. Number one, the pouring forth of the Spirit. And number two, the mocking that comes with it. 
Do you see how what he was talking about on the day of Pentecost is still happening as he writes 2 Peter? Do you see that what was happening then and then is happening now? That we are still living in those last days. Michael Green captures this well when he says, With the advent of Jesus, the last chapter of human history is opened, though it is not yet completed. In between the two advents, that is, the first advent, the coming of Jesus, and the second advent, the return of Jesus, in between the two advents stretches the last time, the last days, which he calls the time of grace and the time, too, of opposition. And it is that opposition that Peter wants his audience to be mindful of. He wants them to know that they're living in the last days, in the days of the Spirit, in the days of God's grace, They're living in the last days, but those last days are also days of opposition. And so he says, know this, first of all, in these last days, mockers will come with their mocking. Back to the text in 2 Peter. In the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. There's one commentator that I have recently been very critical of with Pastor Joe and Pastor Dylan. He totally redeemed himself this week with his comment on this part of the text today. He cited Cypress Hill... Tupac, Sir Mix-a-Lot, and Taylor Swift in a Bible commentary. That doesn't happen very often, friends. He said, as they say, haters gonna hate. So Pastor Peter says, scoffers gonna scoff. Mockers gonna mock. Peter wants his audience to know. He wants them to expect unbelievers to mock them. He doesn't want them to be surprised. He doesn't want them to be surprised. The expository commentary says a scoffer, and then it spells out the Greek word, is one who makes fun of by mocking. And this next part is super informative. It says, scoffing reveals both arrogance and disdain, a proud dismissal of another person or idea as being beneath oneself. Arrogance, disdain, beneath oneself. Scoffer's going to scoff. That doesn't sound very Christ-like, does it? It sounds like Jesus did a lot of scoffing. That's the kind of response, though, to the truth of God's word that we get from the world. And that kind of response is really pathetic in itself, right? To scoff is not to engage in an argument. It's to insult. It's not to debate. It's to taunt. We saw it a little bit. We saw it a little bit in Sunday school, adult Sunday school this morning, right? Uh, As that man continues to say, listen, I don't know everything about him, but what I do know is this. I was blind, and now I can see. And he did it. And they couldn't really engage him in an argument about that, and so they mocked him. They dismissed him. They insulted him. One guy in my Sunday school class says, that's how you know you got him whooped. When you're in a disagreement with somebody and they start calling you names, that's all they've got to go with, that's how you know you've whooped them. That's a good line. Good wisdom there. That's what the world does. It's a messed up world. And if you stand for the truth of God's word, in this messed up world, if you proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ exclusively, in this messed up world, if you live in obedience to him with holiness, guess what? You will be mocked. You'll be belittled. You'll be jeered. You'll be ridiculed. You'll be rejected. And when that happens, you're in good company. When that happens to you, because you proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, because you live with holiness, because you trust his word, when that happens to you, you're in good company. Guess what they did to Jesus himself? They mocked him. 
They mocked him. Look at it in Matthew chapter 27, which, by the way, super encouraged this morning when I got up and I did my daily Bible reading. I had already put Matthew chapter 27 in my notes, and Matthew chapter 27 was part of my reading today. Also interesting, part of my reading was something that I made reference to last week, back in Exodus, I think it's Exodus chapter 12, when, when Moses literally says, when your kids say, what's the deal with this lamb, tell them it's so we remember the Passover. Like that was affirmation of last week. This, so you read the Bible every day. Like be reading the Bible every day. He, he will bring things together for you. But notice in Matthew chapter 27, the mocking of Jesus. The word, the same word that Peter uses in chapter 3, is used three times in the text that I'm going to read to you. And an idea similar to that is used all over the place. It just drips from this. Look at how they mock our Lord Jesus Christ. It says in verse 28, they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him. And took the reed and began to beat him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off of him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. As they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. When they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and the other on the left. And those who were passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts God. Let God rescue him. He delights in him, for he said, I am the Son of God. Verse 44, the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. When you're mocked by this broken world, this godless world, know that you're in good company. They also mocked Jesus. They spat on him. Treated him awfully. It's not just Jesus that we will find ourselves with when we are mocked. It's the apostles. We saw earlier in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, as they, filled with the Spirit, are proclaiming the great things of God, what do people say immediately? They're drunk and they're dumb. That's what they say. That's the reaction from the world. It's not, wow, this is incredible. Wow, this is obviously from the Lord. They must be drunk and they're just Galilean hillbillies. You'll be in good company with the apostles and you'll be a good company with the early church look at this picture this is some graffiti from the first century in rome the graffiti is not a new thing right so so some guys took some kind of implement and carved into a 
wall in Rome this picture, which is maybe the earliest depiction of Jesus in history. And they wrote some trash talk on it. You can't really make it out, but this is, this is what it looks like. Here's another picture. This is the picture. You get it? It's a picture of Jesus on the cross, only he's got a donkey's head. That's not a compliment from the world. That's scoffing. That's mocking. And what it says, the writing says, Alexamenos worships his God. It's the first century. This is a few years after Christ has been crucified in our place and risen again. Already the world is mocking the church, mocking believers in Jesus by drawing graffiti, and it hasn't stopped since then. We still see this kind of mocking all over the place. It's not new. It's not unexpected. So when you are mocked, brothers and sisters, when you are mocked, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Some strange thing has happened. And that's been a drum that Pastor Peter's been beating, right? Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you as if some strange thing were happening. Don't be surprised when they draw things like this about you or say worse things than this about you in the world. Don't be surprised. They did that to Jesus. They did that to the apostles. They'll do that to you as well. Don't be surprised. Know that you are in good company. And also know that it won't always be like this. It won't always be like this. These are the last days. A new day is coming. And when the Lord returns, those mockers will shut their mouths. They will shut their mouths and they will bow their knees to the Lord Jesus Christ. There will not be mocking in eternity. Only praise. Only praise of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Pastor Peter says, Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. This next phrase is super important. He says, following after their own lusts. Following after their own lusts. You see, P Pastor Peter is telling us that in their mocking and in their denial of the return of Christ, they are driven by their own lusts. In other words, it's not primarily an intellectual objection that they raise, but a moral objection that they raise. They want to indulge every desire of the flesh and they know that the gospel, they know that the truth of God's word, they know that the coming return of Christ will not allow them to just indulge every desire of the flesh. So they deny those things. They scoff at those things so that they can indulge the flesh. Dick Lucas says it like this. Although these people may present themselves as sophisticated and knowledgeable, having delicate qualms and posing courageous questions about the more difficult elements of Christian teaching, they are, in reality, driven by their greed and disobedience. Listen to this last line. It is sin, not sophistication, which is in the driving seat. And the false teachers are merely following. They're not leading. They are following the lusts of the flesh. John MacArthur says it also when he says whether or not they admit it, immorality is the real reason that false teachers denied the second coming. They want the freedom to pursue all kinds of lustful pleasures without any fear of punishment. Want the freedom to send it up and not fear any punishment. It's that which is driving their scoffing. It's that pursuit of fleshly desires that is driving their denial of the resurrection, of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder how often we see this happening today around us. 
I wonder how often we see this today in other issues, not just the second coming, but in the denial of Christ's lordship. People say, I want Jesus as my savior, but I don't want him as my Lord. Because if I embrace him as my Lord, I can't chase the desires of my flesh anymore. I'll have to kill myself. I'll have to deny myself. I'll have to take up my cross every day and follow him. I don't want that, but I don't want to go to hell. So I'll take him as savior and I'll reject him as Lord. Why? Because they're driven by the lusts of the flesh. What about when people deny the authority of God's word? Is this coming from the same place? Why do people do these kind of things? Because it opens a broad road to them with a clear conscience. Because they are slaves of the flesh. But I also wonder how often we do this kind of thing in our own lives, us in the room. How often are we driven by lusts of our flesh and we deny particular commandments, particular expectations from God's word? How often are we driven by our fleshly lusts rather than the word of God? So here's what I, what I want us to do is not just wag our fingers and shake our heads at them. As we do that, let's not forget to examine ourselves to see if somehow we are working our way around the word of God in order to indulge our sinful desires. Maybe in a more subtle way, maybe in a more clever, maybe in a more spiritual sounding way, we're doing the same thing and excusing our own sin. We're walking just like them. Kevin DeYoung wrote about this in an article I came across this week, and I thought it was gold. And I want to share it with you, how folks like us do this same kind of thing. Kevin DeYoung says, For many of us, the danger is not that we would explicitly deny the word of God. The danger is that we will nullify the truth in other more subtle ways. Right? I, I, don't, I, I think he's right. In this room, none of you are going to say, I don't need this book. I don't like this book. I don't want this book. Just get rid of it. Stop, stop preaching the book, Chris. None, none of you are going to say that. But all of us are in danger of denying and nullifying the truth in more subtle ways. He lists four of them. Track with this. Number one, we intellectualize. We intellectualize the word of God so as to get out from under its demands. We might throw up our hands because we're not scholars and because so many smart people disagree on how to interpret the Bible. Such an approach has the appearance of sophistication, but it effectively robs the word of its power. I couldn't possibly understand all the demands of God's word, so I just won't obey it. I'll just reject it. I'll intellectualize it to the point where I'll just get around it somehow. He says, number two, we compartmentalize the word of God so that it applies to stealing and lying and a few other matters, but it doesn't speak to our business, our money, our family life, our desires, or what we do with our time. We say, okay, I'll submit to the word of God here. I'll put myself under the authority of the word of God. I'll obey the word of God here, but over here, I kind of like the way I'm doing it. I kind of like the fleshly lusts I can pursue over here, and so I'll just reject it over here. Number three, we psychologize the word of God so that it doesn't apply to us because of our temperament and because of our background. The Bible is only allowed to say what makes me feel good and what encourages my self-expression. Yikes. How, how often are we guilty of that? Like, I just, I just don't like that part. Or, oh, Paul doesn't understand how it is today. Oh, Jesus doesn't know how I grew up. Number four, we marginalize the word of God by coming to it with preconceived notions of what it obviously can and cannot say. 
Consequently, the scriptures can only mean what our culture already affirms. And God can only say to me what I already believe. I'm the top. I'll decide. That's scary. Right? I think it's easy to preach this text and say, look at them. Look at the way they do this. Look at the way they chase the lust of their flesh and deny the second coming. Look at the way they chase the lust of the flesh and deny the authority of God's word and throw the Bible out the window. And we should do that because they certainly are doing those kind of things. But are we? Are we doing the same kind of things, maybe more subtly, maybe more cleverly, maybe with more spiritual rhetoric? Are we doing those same kind of things? Driven by the lust of our flesh, do we intellectualize the word of God, compartmentalize the word of God, psychologize the word of God, marginalize the word of God to the point that we nullify its truth in our own lives? Friends, we got to be careful with this. Rather, what should we do? Trust and obey, right? The simple truth. We learned to sing that song when we were kids. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. That's our job. That's our call. Trust him and obey him. That's what we should do. Read on. Pastor Peter says, Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning. Here we get to the crux of the issue. These guys are denying the second coming of Jesus. I've been saying this since the beginning of the letter. Here's where it comes out expressly. They are denying the second coming of Jesus, and they do it with this mocking tone. It's not a genuine question. They're not saying, where is his coming? Where is his coming? Because we're longing for it. They're using the question as an insult. Where's his coming, Peter? It's been 40 years. Where's his coming, Peter? It's been 60 years. It's been 90 years. And listen, that mocking, that objection has only gathered steam for the last 2,000 years. Those same mockers are saying the same thing today. Where is the promise of his coming, Chris? First Baptist Church, it's been 2,000 years since he left. You people living in light of his return, as if he's going to break the sky and everything will change. I think scoff is an onomatopoeia. Scoff, right? That's what they do. They're just like, ah, it's ridiculous that anyone would think that. It's not a genuine question. It's a taunt. This kind of thing has been going on forever. Look at Psalm 79. The psalmist says, why should the nation say, where is their God? Where is their God? Like he's abandoned them. Let, it, let there be known among the nations in our sight vengeance for the blood of your servants which has been shed. Like, don't let them, don't let them keep mocking, Lord. Bring vengeance, bring judgment. Where is their God? Show them, Lord. That's the cry of the psalmist's heart. And we must remember as we notice their logic, not to forget their motivation. Their motivation for denying the return of the Lord Jesus. They want to sin with impunity. They want to indulge the flesh. They want to enjoy filthy lust without punishment or accountability. And this is their logic. Nothing ever changes. Nothing ever changes since creation, since the death of the fathers, which is probably a reference to Old Testament patriarchs. Since the beginning, nothing has changed. It's all been the same. Do you really think, Peter, do you really think that we should expect a radical interruption of the status quo when the status quo has been unchanged for thousands of years? And today, thousands more years. Do, do you really think 
that we should live our lives in light of some radical change when nothing ever changes. We're going to see Pastor Peter's counter-argument next week when he reminds them that the status quo has often been interrupted. Throughout history, God has often interrupted the status quo with a giant flood, with fire from heaven. A number of times, God has interrupted the status quo. And so what is to come really fits the pattern established in redemptive history, but they've chosen to ignore that. And this argument, it's gained steam. In fact, Piper says, this argument from the first century is an amazingly modern argument for rejecting the supernatural bodily second coming. It simply says, the laws of nature are constant and unchanging. The sun has come up and gone down. The seasons have followed one another. The tides have risen and fallen for thousands of years in perfect order. Therefore, we must expect this constancy for the future. And any thought that the sky might be rolled up like a scroll and the earth purged with global fiery judgment by the returning Christ is unimaginable and unwarranted. Piper says, this is exactly the position of much modern science. And there are hundreds of pastors and theologians in the churches and seminaries today who reject a physical coming and future judgment for the same reason. Not here. Not here. First Baptist Church believes in a physical second coming and a future judgment. Let me, let me tell you what we believe. This is what we believe. We believe that God, in his own time and in his own way, this is the Baptist faith and message, God, in his own time and in his own way, will bring the world to its appropriate end. According to his promise, Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. The dead will be raised, and Christ will judge all men in righteousness. The unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. The righteous will, in their resurrected and glorified bodies, will receive their reward and will dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. That's what we believe. We say it publicly. We're not like shy about it. We publish it. This is what we believe. He is coming. He is coming. He's promised it. How do I know he's coming? He's promised it. In fact, three times, just... In the last chapter of the last book, three times, he promised it directly out of his mouth. Look at Revelation 22, 7. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 12. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I want to be like John there. I want to hear Jesus say, I'm coming quickly, I'm coming quickly, I'm coming quickly, and say, amen, let it be, bring it on, come quickly, Lord Jesus. He is coming, and when he comes, he will judge his enemies. We believe that. Those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ in unbelief, those who demonstrate that unbelief in ungodly living, indulging the desires of the flesh, he will judge them, punish them, and we also believe he will glorify his people when he comes back. We will be vindicated. We will be exalted. We will be rewarded. We will see his face. We sang about this a while ago, and I knew this was coming, and it, it was really exciting to sing. You didn't know this was coming, but this idea of seeing his face and worshiping him forever and ever, that's what we will get on that day. It will be a great day, the day of the Lord, for us, because we will dwell with him forever and ever. And so we say, Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. He is coming. He will judge his enemies. He will glorify his people. 
My question is, where do you stand in all of that? What about you on the day when Christ returns? Will you be found as his enemy who has rejected him in unbelief? Who has demonstrated that unbelief by ungodliness? Or will you be found as his, his child, adopted into his family by grace through faith in him? Demonstrating that faith in obedience, growth in godliness, sanctification. Where will you be on that day? God is holy. You've heard me say this a thousand times. God is holy. He must punish sin. He can't just look away from sin. He can't just ignore sin. He's holy and he must punish sin. And we are sinful and we deserve to be punished. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. That's the reality of the matter. The holy God and the sinful man are at odds with one another. How can we ever be reconciled? Only through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. God became man, took our sin upon himself, died in our place, and rose in victory over sin and over death and over hell. And he offers us salvation as a gift, a free gift that we receive, not by working hard, not by doing the right things, not by getting our act together, but by trusting entirely in him, submitting ourselves entirely to him, resting our whole weight on him. It's good news that sinful man can be reconciled to the holy God by the work of the holy God not by the work of the sinful man. We receive this salvation by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, by repenting of our sins. So I invite you to repent and believe today so that when Christ returns, you'll be with him and not against him. Three applications from this text today. Number one, be neither surprised nor discouraged nor led astray by the mocking of the mockers. Like, it's, it's coming. And they, they draw ugly pictures about you and write nasty things about you and scoff at you and dismiss you and belittle you and ridicule you because you belong to Jesus, because you live for Jesus, because you shout about Jesus with your mouth, because you sing his praises, because you obey his word. Don't be surprised. Don't be discouraged. And don't be led astray. You're in good company. And it won't always be like this. That mocking only lasts for a little while. All the mockers will be destroyed. Brothers and sisters, don't be surprised. Don't be discouraged. Don't be led astray when you are mocked. Number two, follow the Spirit. Trust God and obey His Word. Peter tells us that the scoffers, the false teachers, they're driven by the lusts of their flesh. And that's in all of us, too. Even those of us who are redeemed, the lust of our flesh is still there. Don't be driven by it. Don't be a slave to it. Put to death the deeds of the body. Put to death the flesh and live by the Spirit. See, you don't just have the flesh drawing you toward ungodliness. You have the Spirit empowering you for godliness, for holiness. Walk in the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. Walk according to God's commands. Walk in faith and obedience, in faithful obedience. Follow the Spirit. Trust God. Obey His Word. Be driven by Him. Be driven by Him and not your flesh. Number three, long for the return of Christ and live each moment in light of His coming. 
like the return of Christ, for those who are the, uh, those of us who are the people of God, should get us going a little bit, right? Should motivate us a little bit in a number of areas. One, in faithful obedience. We're going to see this fleshed out. Listen, if you've read ahead all through chapter 3, you're going to see that Peter is going to use the reality of the return of Christ as a motivation for godliness. He's used the reality of the return of Christ, the promise of the return of Christ, as a motivation for sanctification and growth and godliness. He's going to do it that way. And so if we're, going to, if we're going to be excited about the return of Christ, we demonstrate that excitement in growth, in godliness. Killing sin, pursuing Christ. We also demonstrate it in passionate worship. Do you know what we will do after Christ returns forever? Like forever and ever? You know what we will do? We will worship him. We will worship him. So let's, let's be busy about that now. I have said this before, and I will say it again until something changes. Some of you are not fit for it. You can't handle 20 minutes of it in this room. We will do it forever and ever in heaven. When we think about the return of Christ, it should inspire passionate worship in us. Getting ready to join with all those who have gone before, who have heard well done. A thousand generations with one voice singing, worthy is the lamb. Let's be a part of that. And let's join in that even now. Let's practice some for glory. Number three, longing for the return of Christ, living each moment in light of his coming, should also produce in us confident hope. Confident hope. Listen, I get it. Life is hard here for a lot of us. Like suffering upon suffering upon suffering physical suffering, financial suffering, relational suffering, like some of you have it all piled up today. This week, it's all piled up. And you're like broken down under the weight of the suffering of this world. The return of Christ, acknowledging, expecting the return of Christ should breed confident hope in us on those days. I, I, one of the most hopeful things, one of the most helpful things I can say to you as a pastor, if you belong to Christ, it won't always be like this. It won't always be heavy like this. He's going to come back and he will wipe away your tears. And he will take you to a place where there's no more death, no more sorrow, no more suffering. When we think about the return of Christ, it should inspire in us confident hope, passionate worship, faithful obedience, and bold proclamation. That's number four. Bold proclamation. Only those who are in Christ are going to experience that glory. And the only way to be in Christ is to believe in Jesus. And the only way to believe in Jesus is to have heard about Jesus. And the only way people are going to hear about Jesus is if folks like us preach about Jesus. So when we think about the return of Christ, we shouldn't just say, oh, that's going to be a good day for me. And I can't wait till that day comes. We should also say, my neighbor is not ready for that day. My child is not ready for that day. Billions of people on the planet are not ready for that day. It should inspire bold proclamation. You see, the, the return of Christ is not a secondary, not a secondary doctrine. It's not just for Bible nerds to, to think deeply about the return of Christ. It's for average ordinary Christians, and it should make a difference in the way we live. Pastor Peter is writing to average ordinary Christians, inspiring faithful obedience, passionate worship, confident hope, and bold, bold proclamation.
May that take root in our hearts as well. Let's stand together and pray. Father, help us as we go out there. Help us as we go out there not to be surprised and discouraged and led astray when they mock. God, especially protect our hearts when that mocking comes from those who are very close to us, those that we love deeply. Remind us that it only lasts for a little while. Help us as your people as we go out there to live by the Spirit, to be driven by you and not by our flesh, to be putting to death the deeds of the body and living for your glory. And God, I pray in, in here, in here, thinking about the return of Christ will inspire faithful obedience and passionate worship and confident hope so that as we go out there, we will also boldly proclaim, boldly proclaim the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There are, Lord, you know, there are folks in this room today who have no hope, who may have walked in the room scoffing. Maybe they walk out of the room scoffing. What I know is this, only you can change a heart. You've done it in my life. You've done it in the life of a bunch of folks in this room. So we pray that you'll do it more, more today for the sake of your own name. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.